Well, good evening. Uh, my name's Rod, and I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. If you're visiting or new, it's great to have you along. Uh, we're looking at this passage in Luke tonight. Uh, so let me pray for us firstly, ask that God will help us as we come to wrestle with this text. It's a well-known passage, but there's a lot in it for us to think about and its implications for ourselves today. So let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here tonight. Uh, we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself through your word and ultimately through the person of your son, the Lord Jesus. And as we consider this interaction in his ministry tonight, help us to see how you're calling us to respond to him, that we might understand afresh the challenge of being those that respond to him rightly. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, a couple who were aspiring to be uh, reality TV show stars from Northern Virginia managed to crash a dinner party at the White House in Washington. Uh, they, this was in November 24, 2009. Um, they managed to penetrate layers of uh, security without an invitation and eventually ended up mingling with the likes of famous people that had been invited, including Joe Biden, the vice president, and eventually even getting a snap with Obama himself. Their names were Tarek and Michaela Salahi, and they're polo-playing socialites. And they only became really famous for their role in the reality show Housewives of Washington. They snuck in. No one picked it up at the time. They took all these photos of themselves and then later posted on Facebook. All these shots of them with these famous um, people, at the VIPs at this elite gathering, and wrote on their joint page, honoured to be at the White House for the state dinner in honour of India with President Obama and our First Lady. Now this was rather embarrassing for the Secret Service who were supposed to look after such events around the White House and not allow such things to take place. Apparently one of their security stops um, had not followed protocol and they'd snuck through. They hadn't checked that they were actually on the invited guest list. And so in they went. Apparently it's the first person to ever pull this off in modern history to just sneak through in this way. And a spokesman for the Secret Service wanted to assure everyone in their embarrassment that um, nobody was in danger. He said this, everyone who enters the White House grounds goes through magnetometers and several other levels of screenings. And this was the case at the state dinner. No one was under any risk or threat. Well, maybe so. But uh, they waltzed in, he in a tux, her in a very striking red and gold lehenga, which is a traditional Indian formal wear. A Marine announced their names like he announced everybody else there at the gathering. They swept past reporters, they stopped and posed for photos, all without having an invitation. Well, that might have been an embarrassment for some people in the Secret Service at the White House, but they were well-dressed, they fitted in. No one actually picked it up until later when they put something on Facebook. But when we come to the passage that we have tonight in Luke 7, we have someone of ill repute that crashes a dinner party and she creates a huge stir. And the resulting interactions that come from this teach us a great deal about how we should respond to Jesus. And so that's the big question that I want us to consider as we unpack this section tonight, how are we to respond to Jesus' offer of forgiveness? How are we to respond to his offer of forgiveness? The first answer to that question is this, with love that matches his abounding grace, 
with love that matches his abounding grace. So notice again how the scene starts from verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house and so she came there holding an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. So let's think about the scenario here. Jesus is invited to a dinner party. It's from a Pharisee. The Pharisees were part of the religious leaders. They were there to instruct the people. They were there to make sure that people fulfilled the law. They were generally very anti-Jesus. They had had a number of run-ins even at this point. And so Jesus accepting the dinner party invitation is a step in itself. Probably even on that basis alone, it was going to be an awkward dinner gathering. But the entrance of an uninvited guest takes the awkwardness through the stratosphere, a whole new level. Because it's likely that this unnamed woman had been a prostitute in the town. Adultery is another possible cause of her description. We don't actually know. The original just says a woman who was a sinner. Uh, but whenever women are described very bluntly like this in the New Testament, uh, it's nearly always because of sexual immorality. So assuming, as most commentators do, that she was a prostitute, you can imagine the stir that such an uninvited guest would have entering into a religious leader's house for his select dinner of people that he had gathered and chosen. You know, if a couple of well-dressed Northern Virginians can create a big stir on social media just by turning up to a dinner in Washington, well, then think about how this kind of appearance would be scandalous. No one would possibly miss it. I mean, in a small town in Galilee, the entrance of such a person... This wasn't to be something that's just um, talked about for a day or two on social media. This would be an incident that would be remembered for years to come. She was clearly known to everyone. Her very presence would have put Simon the host and his other guests on edge, even before she did anything. So imagine the scene. Imagine you're there at this dinner party. There's a central low-lying table in the middle of the room. There are people around it in a circle facing in, lying down on cushions with their feet out the back behind them. In walks this lady to the group uh, where the door would have been ajar because often in these scenarios there was an allowance for people in the town to come and hear the discussion. They might come into the back of the room and hear what the Pharisee had to say and his special guest this night being Jesus. And so she sneaks into the room and she goes behind Jesus and starts these actions that we read about. The woman there is holding this jar, starts weeping, and of course she's crying so much that her tears are wetting Christ's feet. Now at that point, people would have been feeling quite awkward and cringing. And then she is drying his hair, drying his feet with her hair, and then even kissing his feet. And so if her entrance into this party had not shocked the people there enough, at this point they're stunned. They're probably thinking, what is the Pharisee going to do? Surely somebody's going to throw her out. Something's going to happen here. Look, I can remember sitting in the Wentworth building at Sydney University. It's a big uh, building where lots of people have lunch. There's a couple of floors of eatery, hundreds of seats. 
sitting there having lunch one day in 1990 when this adult entertainer entered the room. She goes up to this guy who we then discovered shortly after was having his 21st birthday that day. She's carrying a ghetto blaster on her shoulder and she announces to anyone in her hearing that she has been hired by his parents as a 21st birthday gift and was now going to go into her routine. Well, people didn't know where to look or what was going to happen next. And I was looking at this guy and his friends and this guy was just hoping that the earth would open up and swallow him. It was just so awkward. Well, imagine this scenario here. The presence of a local prostitute is no less uncomfortable at Simon the Pharisee's house, even though she is coming in repentance and humility. I mean, every eye in the room would have been on her. The tears, the kissing of Christ's feet. But what happens next would have shocked them even more. They wouldn't have been able to understand what was unfolding because she cracks open this alabaster jar of perfume. Now, once you broke the seal for this, then it would have to be used. And so it's assumed she probably poured out the whole amount. If this was pure nard, it'd be worth 300 denarii. This is like a year's wage. I don't know, imagine in Australian terms, there's a $100,000 bottle of perfume and she's going to pour it out on Jesus' feet. This would have been her family inheritance. This is like giving away all that she had, her most precious possession, pours it out on Christ's feet. Well, at that point, people would have not known what to think about her actions. Simon the host is probably all the more embarrassed at this point, this extravagant expression. But what she is doing is showing great humility. She's expressing her repentance, that she acknowledges who Jesus is. She's come obviously to the party to interact with Jesus, to pour out this perfume in this way. It is a costly, incredibly extravagant expression of her love. And to say that people would have been taken aback at that moment is an understatement. I could not imagine someone doing this. And so you've got to wonder at this point, what is Simon thinking about his dinner party? Surely he's just bursting and wanting to say something at this point. And suddenly in verse 39, we get to hear something of his thoughts. But then also we have Jesus' commentary on Simon's assessment. So notice from verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. And so he forgave both of the debts. Now... Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt, the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. In fact, in making that assessment, Simon the Pharisee has brought judgment on himself. You see, the main issue suddenly emerges here in the passage with the Pharisee's comment in verse 39. Simon assumes that Jesus, as a holy man like him, is not wishing 
to be defiled. He would not interact with such a person like this. He would not have a time of day for such a sinner. And so surely he'd be telling her to get away, that he wouldn't speak to her, he'd have nothing to do with her. He'd be asking Simon to throw her out. He reasons that this has not happened because, well, Jesus mustn't know who she is. He mustn't be aware of her character. But then as he joins the dots together, he thinks, well, that can't be right because isn't he a prophet from Galilee? What kind of prophet doesn't know who this woman is? He can't possibly be a prophet. Well, Jesus' response shows his prophetic ability as he addresses Simon's thoughts. But then he offers his judgment on the Pharisee. To show how wrong his assessment was, Jesus told him the parable of the moneylender. Moneylender who cancels the debts of two debtors. Now, denarius is a Roman coin. It was about a day's wage at that time. So 50 denarii. Now, think of 10 weeks wages. An average week's wage at the end of last year in Australia was $1,600. So let's say the smaller of the two debts here is $16,000. The larger of the two debts is just an unimaginably large amount for a person in Galilee in the first century. And you can imagine the room listening as Jesus walks through this story and now he's going to pointedly apply it to the host of the dinner party, the religious leader of this place. And he's going to say that his lack of love is indicated by the way he's treated Jesus. In contrast, she has shown great love to him, this extravagant love, sharply contrasted with Simon's minimal respect his condescending, judgmental attitude to the woman, and yes, even to Jesus. The woman had experienced forgiveness for her many sins, so she showed great love and gratitude. The woman's actions were actually evidence of how great her debt had been. If she were one of the two people in the story, she's the 500 denarii. And how correspondingly great Christ's forgiveness is, how wonderful his grace Meanwhile, the self-righteous Pharisee who believed he had few, if any, sins had very little love for Jesus. He didn't see his need of Jesus. He doesn't need forgiveness. He's not a sinner like her. If only he'd had eyes to see his own desperate plight as someone also in need of God's grace. You see, we cannot value God's amazing, undeserved kindness, his unmerited favor, his grace to us until we fully appreciate our sin, until we see the depth of our need. Only then do we see how incredible God's actions towards us are. She saw it. The Pharisee missed it completely. You see, as we apply this passage to ourselves, I think the thing that comes out for us is to realize that the litmus test of whether you have understood God's grace is measured by your public love for Jesus. So let me ask you, do you love Jesus in an open and costly way? The love of our life comes at a cost. You know, there's a recent story uh, that's been very popular in China of a Chinese multimillionaire who gave up all of his wealth, his metropolitan lifestyle, in order to live with his true love 
is a poverty-stricken woman in a small rural village in China. It's a story that's touched many hearts in that country because usually marrying for true love is not a first step or requirement. So for a 60-year-old man, Yao Nashan, to give up his considerable fortune abroad that he'd made in Spain, running a huge chain of restaurants in Seville, to come back to China and to live in a small village in the backwoods was a huge step. You see, it all started in 2013. He was back home. He'd gone mountain hiking with a friend of his. They got lost. They took a long time to get back to the nearby town where this woman that he would eventually marry lived. Uh, they missed their last bus back to his hometown of Quintiang in southeast China. And so then they were stuck. They had to go around to houses and knock on doors and just grovel and ask that somebody might put them up for the night. They'd have somewhere to stay. They eventually knock on this woman's house. She allows him to come and stay. And he says he was impressed by her kindness and happiness. He works out as he talks to her that she'd had this very cruel upbringing that had led to the poverty that she now lived in. He returned to Spain and to work. But a couple of years later, he came back. He professed his love for her and proposed to marry her. And Yao was telling the reporters that she didn't believe him to begin with. There was such a vast difference in their backgrounds and their wealth and standing. She thought it was a joke. But no, he was deadly serious and they married in December of 2015. He gave up his life in Seville in Spain he sold seven houses that he owned in Quintiang, just gave them away to family and friends and came and lived with her in her small rural town and they now run a tiny little hostel. Well, if romantic love can cause somebody to give up everything, how much more the divine love of our Saviour Jesus who laid down his life for us. See, I want to ask the question, do you publicly sacrifice, are you willingly to publicly sacrifice everything you have for Jesus, your reputation, your possessions, your standing, so that you might have an undivided love for Jesus? And perhaps you've accepted that Jesus really calls you to put him first in everything, but you feel trapped um, somehow into protecting your reputation or your standing. You know, I can't talk a lot about Jesus at work because... Well, that creates huge problems and I may lose my position or my role. And so, you know, it comes at a cost to really be out there publicly loving Jesus all the time. Or perhaps you just find yourself caught up in the treadmill of doing the things in this world that everyone else does, chasing the earthly loves that everyone else is pursuing. Rather than pursuing God and giving all your resources in your life to him. How would you test that? Well, look, if there was somebody that really knew you well, perhaps somebody in this room tonight, and I was to ask them, what do you love? What does that person love? Would they answer potentially to your shame, you know, she really loves shopping. That's what she loves. Or he really loves his sporting team. That's the number one thing in his life. They really love coffee. Coffee is it whatever it might be. Or would people summarize you as somebody who really loves Jesus? 
You know that guy, he can't stop serving Jesus. He just puts all his resources, all his time and energy into serving Jesus. You know, this woman's amazing. She speaks nonstop about Jesus. I don't hear about anything but Jesus. She's always sharing Jesus with her friends. It's all about him. That couple, you know, they just have given up all they had for this one who has laid down his life for them. You see, responding to God's grace with a life of sacrificial love, it's not some sideline hobby. It's not some interest that just fills in part-time. The love of our life is all-consuming. And it comes at a cost, but it's a cost that we willingly give. Yao, it seems, didn't think twice about just giving up all he had that he might be with this woman who he saw as the love of his life. We're compelled by Christ's love for us to love him with everything that we have. And it will be seen in the way we speak, in the things we do, in what we value, in what we're known for, what we love. And that brings me to a second answer. A second answer to our question of how to respond to Christ's offer of forgiveness. Our second answer is this, with submission and faith. With submission and faith that recognizes Christ's authority. So notice again um, how the passage concludes from verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say to among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now these final comments here in the passage are significant. Significant since up to this point, the issue has been a response of love. But Christ's remark here revealed that there is a crucial theological sequence to thinking through this clearly. You know, first, there is the offer of forgiveness from God. Secondly, there's a response of faith from the individual. And then thirdly, such faith will demonstrate itself in acts of love, such as that performed by the woman for Jesus. It seems that the woman had experienced forgiveness before she came to the party. She came repentant. She came wanting to express her love for Christ. Something had happened beforehand. It's very clear that she's not saved by what she does on this night at the house, at the party. Rather, Jesus makes it very clear for her, if it wasn't already, very clear for us in the readers that follow in the years to come, that it was all about her simple trust in Jesus, that he had paid for her forgiveness highlights this important truth in his authority jesus can deal with our profoundest need that of forgiveness before a holy god did you notice as we read through this passage three times we're told this woman is a sinner this woman is a sinner this woman is a sinner three times we're also told jesus is the one who can forgive sins He's the only one who can forgive sins. He has the power to deal with the problem. You see, the issue for many Jews in this first century as they came to Pharisees like Simon was that Simon had no solution for the problem of sin. The Pharisees' response to sin was disapproval, condemnation. There was no opportunity for a fresh start. There was no wiping the slate clean. And yet Jesus comes along and says, in contrast, I can do away with sin. I can bring the salvation that you're searching for. I can bring true peace, true peace with your maker. And that's what he leaves with her at the end. 
Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And you see, it's highlighted for us the difference in thinking about this for the reaction of the other guests. See, it's not just Simon that doesn't see Christ's authority. It's not just Simon who doesn't see his need of forgiveness. It's the other guests in verse 49 who are thinking, well, this Jesus is blasphemous. Who is it that can say he forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins. And that's the very point. Jesus saying, I can. I'm the eternal son of God here with you. I have the authority to forgive this woman's sins. Indeed, anybody's sins. If only those in the room understood it as well, they would have been lining up to receive God's grace through the Messiah that had been promised who was standing right before them. Like the sinful woman, they too needed to bow the knee. They needed to come to him. You see, over and over, Jesus is the unexpected king. Here is the king who comes, who forgives. The king that can announce debts removed. The unexpected king. Let me close with a couple of applications for ourselves tonight from this truth. The first is this. We are called to place our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins as well. No different standing at this point in time. If you're not a believer here tonight, let me plead with you to see the offer that Jesus is making in this passage. Not just to this woman, but to all those who would read it, such as ourselves today. See the freedom from guilt, the freedom from sin, which is rejection of God and his rightful rule over our life, whereby we say, look, I'm in charge. I don't need your help, God. I'm going to work things out. If there's heaven, I'm going to make it to heaven because I'm a good person. I'm going to do enough things to get there. Well, that's the number one obstacle in this passage. Why is it that the Pharisee can't see it? Well, Because he thinks he's good enough. He doesn't need Jesus. He ticks off the laws. He's done all the right things. See, the number one obstacle to us receiving this free gift of salvation is our willingness to acknowledge that we need it. And then to accept it on God's terms and not on ours. We need to recognize, like our world today, we're broken. You know, we only have to look at the news for five minutes, don't we? We're wondering whether World War Three is going to start as people are firing missiles into Syria. There was a little meme that went round you see today uh, with a guy standing there saying, so we're not happy that they're using chemical weapons on their people, so we're firing missiles so they won't throw chemical weapons at their people. And then when their people flee their country, we won't have them come to our country. They're not going to stay with us. Our our world is chaotic. It's messed up. People are trying to do what they think is best. Don't hear me just dissing all of the political leaders who are in a very difficult scenario with all of that. But as we look around our world, it is just flawed and often seemingly hopeless. But if we think long enough and we look at ourselves, we realize we're flawed too. We're part of this broken mess. Why is our world like this? Well, it's because of us humans. That's why. You say, well, you know, why is God's standard so perfect that I can't meet it? Well, God summarizes everything that he said and his expectation of how people will live under his rule. And he can boil it down to just two things. 
Love God with all your heart. Love other people as you love yourself. Frankly, I don't think I've been able to do that one day of my life. I don't know about you. But I find it difficult to love God with all my heart and soul and strength every minute of every day. Let alone love the people around me as I love myself. Because they're all flawed and I struggle with them just as they do with me. The bar is way too high for us to meet. God doesn't call us to try and meet it. He says, I have given you my son. Trust in him. He has lived the perfect life that you cannot. So we have to recognize our need. I think sometimes that just sounds too easy. So I simply have to place my trust in Jesus and he's done it all. We're almost offended. It's like the debt parable that he tells, you know. Imagine if you're walking down Crown Street and you defaulted on your mortgage payment. You can't pay the bill to keep your house and you run into your banker and he says, well, you know, you've defaulted today, but we've decided we're just going to cancel your debt. You know, it's free. Be like, no, it's a joke. Where are the cameras? I've got to contribute. I've got to, no, I'll pay it next week. I'm going to catch up. It just seems too unbelievable, too good to be true. We just, we have to contribute. You know, there's a leading manufacturer a few years ago that developed a new cake mix. And they spent millions of dollars on this. And they did all these surveys and testing. They got people to try it out. And they found that it was great. It was superior to all the other brands on the market. And they had made it so all that you needed to do was add water. And they released this product to great fanfare, their cake mix. And no one bought it. They just couldn't work out why. They'd done all this testing and spent all this money. And so then they spent another truckload of money trying to work out what had gone wrong. And they got all these surveys back again. And they reworked their mix and released it onto the market again. And it sold, well, like hotcakes. They had changed the recipe. So you need to add water and one egg. People were happy because then they could contribute. You feel like you're cooking then. You know, I've added something to the mix. I've done something. I've, I've contributed to the outcome. It's too unbelievable without that. You can't just add water. It just doesn't seem right. Well, it's just like grace. Salvation by faith alone. We want to do it another way. We want to do it on our terms and we don't like the way that God presents it to us sometimes. We somehow find it offensive thinking that we want to earn our way, that we've got something to give. But this woman illustrates that you have nothing to bring to the table. She simply came and threw herself in humility and gratitude at Jesus' feet. That's all that God's asking. Well, the second application for us. I want to make, if you're a believer here tonight, I have a question for you. Do you submit to Christ's rule in your life by sharing his compassion and his engagement with those who are yet to trust in Jesus? Do you have Christ's compassion for all those around you, just as she, he had with this woman who came to him? See, the Pharisee's approach was he was going to separate himself from sinners. I'm not going to engage with these people. They're going to defile me. I have nothing to do with them. They're different. Um, I'm going to stay away from them. And Jesus is the opposite, isn't he? He's the one that gets called, you know, the one who eats with sinners. He's always out with tax collectors and he's having dinner with the prostitutes. He was the extreme opposite to Simon the Pharisee. 
Jesus didn't isolate himself ever. And yet he was straight about sin. He was still calling people for forgiveness. But he was engaging with them. He was being compassionate on all. Grace is for all people. And so he pursues people like this woman that others would just give up on and think she's unworthy of receiving God's grace. Jesus says, no, we persevere in sharing his words of life. Whatever responses might come. You know, so often we're really good at pursuing and persevering in other areas of life. But we find this one hard. There's a story in the news this week of a guy named Troy Zakowski. Now, this is a guy who perseveres. Um, I don't know if you heard about him, but last month he braved frostbite, minus 30 degree temperature, the threat of attack from wolf packs and exposure to Alaska's frozen wilderness to finish third in a race that's called the Idiotrod Trail Invitational. Never heard of that? Uh, it's the world's longest winter ultra marathon. You've got 30 days, one month to make it from Anchorage in Alaska up to the town of Nome. You've got nothing with you but a fat tired motorbike to drive across the snow, just enough clothing to get there and food as well. And you avoid the wolf packs on the way. He's now a three time veteran of this race. He said very few people sign up for it. They're not willing to persevere. Only 26 of us signed up last year. and Only six of us actually made it across the finishing line. A thousand miles through the snow. This year, he said only 19 people signed up. Why would he do it? Why? Well, he said, well, it brings together his two greatest loves of testing human endurance, human performance, and his love of the outdoors. See, people love a quest, don't they? If somebody said to you, you know, you could save the world by climbing Mount Everest. Tell me where I can start. Get me on a team. Let's go across the wilderness to Alaska. If that's the quest, we will persevere and go to the nth degree for things at the end that there might be a small round of applause or a medal. Well, let me put it to you that your two greatest loves that need to combine is your love for Jesus and your love for other people, that they may hear about Jesus and respond to his grace. And if you were to combine those two, then you would continue to persevere. You would endure through any knockbacks or struggles that you might keep holding out the word of life so that God will gather those he's gathering. Uh, so often we will go to great lengths for tasks that have a meaningless outcome. And then there are those that we know that are lost around us and we just sort of shrug our shoulders and say it's too hard. They're not like me. They're different. Um, I'm not interested in the things they're interested in. I'm, I'm busy with work. Um, you know, they're not good people. And so we condescendingly look down on others. Jesus shows us in this passage that if the light of the gospel is to break into our dark world, then we need to engage it with the kind of compassion that he engaged it with. That we're to love people in the way that he loved them. That we're to give our life, our wholeheartedly, to this task. This is how we show Christ's compassion for all people. By holding out his words of forgiveness that others may respond. And you know, we want to do that to the whole spectrum of people. It doesn't matter if it's a Simon the Pharisee who thinks he has no need of God. Down to the person who instantly says, I need Jesus. All of them need to hear 
Every single one of them has an opportunity to respond to God's grace. And he has given us the great opportunity to hold out those words of life, to be like Jesus, to love like Jesus. Why do we do so? Because he first loved us. And so we love him through loving other people. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ's compassion, for his engagement with those that often our world says is not, are not worthy of attention. Like this woman who came into the midst of the dinner party, help us not to see anybody beyond the reach of your grace. Indeed, if we've come to faith, then we ourselves know how you've been so merciful and gracious to us. Help us to respond to your offer of forgiveness with a life that seeks to reflect your love to us in our love for others. Lord, we ask for your help in this. We know we're weak. Strengthen us by your Holy Spirit, we pray, that we might live as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.